Welcome to Mental Health Film Comment. This is Brian here with you. Boogie Nights is a 1997 film ostensibly about the sometimes glamorous, sometimes sleazy world of adult films. Now, I do need to mention, I have been in the midst of a panic attack from last night going into today, so I will do my best to be as on point and prepared as possible. Joining me today is Joshua Shea, pornography addiction expert and author. Hi, Josh. Thank, thank you for coming on, on the show today. And thank you for having me today. I appreciate you uh, giving me this platform. Now, this podcast, as you know, is a commentary track format. And the reason this is a commentary track format is because you are not alone. I know there's many people out there listening today who will say, what do you mean I'm not alone? Of course I'm alone. I'm the only one here. And so when, when you have someone to go to a movie with, when you have someone to watch a movie with, movie watching is a social activity. But when you do not have anyone to watch a movie with or go to the movies with, then watching a movie can be um, an exercise in loneliness and, and solitude. And so I will be here to watch th this movie with you. Uh, Josh will be here with you as well for um, a little while. I, do, I don't think it'll be for the whole movie and maybe a part of the movie. Um, so if you would like to queue up Boogie Nights, I will be on the other side of the pause button. So if you are at the section of the movie where you see the New Line Studio logo, you are in the correct place. I did want to mention the two crisis text line numbers, because I know that there may be some triggering content you may need to reach out if there's anything um, that you need to reach out about. In the US, you can text NAMI, N-A-M-I, to 741741. If you are in the UK, you can text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T to 85258. Again, in the U.S., 741741. In the U.K., shout, S-H-O-U-T. So that said, again, welcome. Uh, Josh, thank you for um, coming on today. Thank you so um, much for having me. Now, one thing I wanted to acknowledge up front for many people listening today is the topic of pornography and pornography addiction. Many people, many people will be listening and hear that and say to themselves, that's not a mental health issue. And, and so the, the, the point of, of having you on today is to address how absolutely it is very much a mental health issue. And I, so I, I did want to ask one of the, I guess, probably the, the, the basic starting point question in this would be, what, what is the definition of pornography? Well, to me, I think pornography is really two things. Uh, number one, we can all agree upon. Pornography is that triple X stuff that you have to go into the 
back room of the old video store to get or that there's a special theater on the edge of town. Um, I, I think we can all agree that's pornography um, and that's a, that's a real easy definition. Uh, second, I would say that pornography is really also a concept. Uh, pornography to me is any material whether it be written or visual that is used to excite yourself uh, in, a, in a sexual manner, not necessarily to the point of orgasm, but to stimulate yourself sexually. And depending on who you are, that can be a Victoria's Secret catalog or the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue or a song or whatever it, it may be out there that does it for you. Uh, the Supreme Court still refuses to define pornography. They go with the far simpler obscenity. Um, yeah, isn't, I, I understood is there was a Supreme Court justice who said, there was a, a quote, I don't know what it is, but I'll, I'll recognize it when I see it. I think that's Absolutely, the, yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things I think that we can all agree on. We know that, you know, anything that has the triple X label generally is going to be pornography. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, by the law, very, very little fits into the pornography uh, definition, mm -hmm. but, you know, society-wise, we've got a much wider net. Um, and again, I think it's one of those things that you know, you know it when you see it, and mm -hmm. your pornography may not be my pornography. Mm -hmm. yes. um, it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, it, it's as much a concept as it is an actual thing. Mm -hmm. Correct. Now, for those who may be watching the movie while they're listening to the podcast, uh, if this were a movie-specific podcast, this is the part where I would be saying, gee, that opening sequence of Boogie Nights looks an awful lot like the Martin Scorsese movie Mean Streets. And so if you were looking for that level of commentary track. I did want to mention that so you will not be disappointed. I, I wanted to mention though that aside from all the major characters in Boogie Nights being shown in this opening sequence, and I don't believe Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is in this opening sequence or even if he is considered a major character, I believe he would be a secondary character. I, th I think you're right, yeah. The one, one of the things that's fairly established in the opening of Boogie Nights is he's working with a, a stacked deck, meaning A, there's already a story going on before the movie starts, and B, you can see this in the, in the scene where the Bird Reynolds character goes back to essentially re recruit the Mark Wahlberg character into his schemes because the Mark Wahlberg character, this is a teenager in the right. film. He's already hustling himself prior to this scene where the Bird Reynolds character comes in to essentially recruit him. So I'm not, I'm not saying that the movie is dishonest, but it sort of is in a way because it doesn't start the storyline in a Mayberry and White Picket Fence type story, but it, it already opens the story with the characters being established as having their flaws and, and fallible characters. I, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, 
I think that as far as Paul Thomas Anderson goes, I kind of appreciate that because while I love a movie like Magnolia, he left <laughs> everything in there. Exactly. And, you know, I think that we are given enough of uh, Dirk's early life. We're able to mm -hmm. see that, you know, he's got this service job he doesn't like. He's working this hustle on the side. It's clear that his mother doesn't really... Uh, care for him or she has plenty of issues herself that the father is just cuckolded um, you know he's got a nice enough girlfriend but they're not going anywhere uh, I, I, I think that we actually know enough about uh, Dirk and I think that in some ways a lot of the audience can relate to Dirk as just this guy moving through life kind of you know aimlessly until he meets Jack uh, and until he meets the whole, you know, swarm of uh, Jack, Jack being the Burt Jack being Burt Reynolds, correct. And it's also, I would imagine, to a lot of suburban kids who may have seen this movie, the same suburban kids. What's that that joke in Wayne's World about? Every suburban kid get gets a copy of Frampton Comes Alive right. or, 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 or Van Halen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I would imagine for many of those kids watching the movie, it probably has an element of fantasy as well uh, with, you know, oh, gee, look at this awesome teenager who's going on to be in porn. Well, I, and, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Uh, I saw this first when I was 22 years old. And while I was uh, a porn addict at that point, it, there was a certain level of, uh, he hit a lottery ticket here to, you know, number one, be born so well endowed to being, you know, picked out of a crowd uh, by Burt Reynolds to going back to his house and having mm -hmm. sex with Roller Girl that night. Mm -hmm. Uh, it just seems like wow, this guy's this guy's got everything. This is great. You can. I think that the viewer, uh, or at least the male viewer, is seduced in a lot of the same way that Dirk himself is seduced into the beginning part of this lifestyle. Correct. Now, this um, this movie, Boogie Nights, has a somewhat of a comparison point in many ways to the. Quentin Tarantino and, and Robert Rodriguez uh, Grindhouse movie in that the Grindhouse movie with, with the, the Tarantino and Rodriguez is a very specific subculture, be it black exploitation movies, general exploitation movies that the general movie going, going public probably was not aware of, which, which I was, and, and I, I loved that movie. Uh, movies, plural. Uh, however, many people watching Boogie Nights are equally as oblivious to a major subtext of the film being that the pornography as depicted in this film is not pornography of the VCR type. It's pornography of the theatrical distribution type. Right, ex exactly. That was back. I mean, I think the movie starts in 77 and runs up through 81. And towards the end, you do see them talking about video a little bit, but this was still drive-in movie time. This was Correct. still adult, you know, adult theater time when they would run continually all day. And I think that may actually soften it a bit because 
the porn of that day was a bit softer. It wasn't <laughs> as aggressive. The they did put a value on storyline in the <laughs> pornography itself. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's not nearly as degrading towards women uh, <laughs> on the whole as your your. Uh, middle stream America porn is these days. So it, it's in a way, uh, it's almost back to a quainter time because you have to remember when this movie came out, they're depicting a time 20 years ago. Now we're depicting a time 40 years ago. Well, that was, in many ways, wasn't that the whole stereotype of, of, of the guy in the trench coat and all that stuff? And Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know there's a line somewhere in this film uh, when they talk about making a real film and, you know, <laughs> Burt Reynolds talks about wanting the viewer to, you know, have their, have their little orgasm during <laughs> a porn film, but then be so enthralled with the story that he has to sit there and just watch the rest of the movie. And I think that shows a certain level of pathos that while we don't really know Burt Reynolds' origin story in this film, you know, he didn't want to be a pornographer. He wanted to be a filmmaker. <laughs> correct, correct. And I'm guessing just left turns and right turns in the wrong direction and right. wanting a certain lifestyle with a nice house right. and people around uh, led him to becoming a pornographer. Correct. One of the, um, and you had alluded to this earlier, is I'm just old enough to have been a frequent patron of Tower Records. Tower Records had a video section. It was not, it was obviously not your blockbuster video. Right. But it was not your, uh, you know, pornos in the back either. There would be, I distinctly remember, there would be Tower Videos that rented uh, Russ Meyer movies, Mud Honey and, and Faster Pussycat, and who rented, uh, you know, some version of Caligula. So they weren't categorized as porno uh, per se, but they were mixed in with regular movies. You'd be you'd be looking at you know browsing the movies. You see, okay, Eraserhead, Pretty in Pink, Caligula. Okay, you know. So it's kind of weird that it was just. I don't know if that was true for all tower locations which had a video rental. But it was treated, from my experience, when I rented from Tower Records, which, and I say this in the past tense, Tower Records is you know, no longer with us, so I, I think I'm, I'm safe from being <laughs> accused of any uh, inaccurate uh, depictions, was that the, the, the titles were just categorized in a very matter-of-fact manner. Yeah. Whether you were 18 or 21, as long as you had your you know, driver's license, you could rent the movie. They were much, much more lax than a standard video store. When I was a kid, I was 13 or 14 years old, and we had an independent video store. It wasn't a blockbuster. Uh, they had a section next to the adult section that was behind mm -hmm. the swinging saloon doors. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a quote unquote, I guess you'd say softcore section. And that's where I started renting when I was 13 years old. I didn't have the guts to go through those doors. Mm -hmm. And I could, they had the, you know, a lot of Playboy videos there. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Caligula. That's what made me think of it because they did have Caligula <laughs> there. They had some of these uh, drive-in movies that didn't 
crossed the line into pornography, but were very much sexploitation films. <laughs> and th being able to rent those and bring those up to the counter uh, was kind of what gave me the, uh, the uh, courage, I guess you'd say, to actually go into the adult section <laughs> one day and rent them. And yeah. they didn't bat an eye when I came out with the triple X videos. And yeah. that was, you know, that was me at 14 or 15 years old mm -hmm. being able to get my pornography fixed because mm -hmm. by that point I was already an addict. And uh, sure. it was like th those swinging saloon doors were like walking into the gates of heaven because mm -hmm. suddenly this entire world that I wanted to uh, just disappear into this mm -hmm. fantasy land, uh, it was, it was open to me. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that, I think that a lot of the movies that, you know, Jack would have made back then would have straddled the line between that triple X <laughs> stuff and the yeah. just, you know, deeper sexploitation. Yeah, Cause what you're talking about in large part is what in counseling terms or mental health terms would be called self-medicating. That's, oh, absolutely. that's self-medicating behaviors. The uh, one thing that you had alluded to, and I, I want to collect my thoughts because I'm still working through this uh, tail end of this uh, panic attack um, from last night, is you had alluded to this in, in your definition that pornography, as it's, you know, in its definition and in a workable definition, could pertain to a mainstream Hollywood movie if someone is watching it for the wrong reasons, if someone is, 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 has let's, their mind in the gutter or, or let's or, be honest, there's a lot of quote unquote independent film out of Europe that seems like it's little more than an excuse for highbrow pornography. Oh, uh, co correct. And that was, and it's, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I did want to ask you about that. There has been, and I'm, I'm not going to mention the names because I don't want people Googling them. Um, judging by the, the way you asked the questions, I know I, I have some idea and I know there are at least, I want to say three or four that I, I, that I think you would be referring to. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm not going to mention the names because I don't want people to, to Google the movie names. Um, on that point, though, do you see that there's been, um, and not necessarily Me Too related or even COVID-19 related, but have you seen a lot of pushback in terms of, you see stories about people walk, you know, walking up and getting out at a screening at, at Cannes or at Telluride or Sundance, and it seems like little by little, you're seeing more of those types of types of stories. I don't know if they're anecdotal or if it's a, a publicist trying to get some headlines to get it's a distribution with, with, with a Netflix or with, you know, whoever. But from my perception, there has been a much, yeah, I'll say a much greater pushback than there used to be. You know, I think it goes back to the taboo thing. I think it also of, and, and I do believe some of it is manufactured because, you know, let, let's be honest, 20, 25 years ago, if you were going to see certain things, you were either going to have to rent a porno movie or, you know, happen to have HBO or Cinemax, 
or you were going to have to see a foreign film. I remember growing up, I'm from Maine, and I'm from a very, uh, I'm from a part of Maine that was settled by a lot of uh, French Canadians. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up and we had 14, 15 channels, three of them were French language. And one of them, and they're all from Canada, mm -hmm. one of them showed a lot of uh, uncut movies after 10 p.m. that were from France. And this was where I saw my, you know, a lot of the early, uh, uh, I don't want to say porn, but the, the uh, liberal use of nudity and sexual situations <laughs> in film that really wasn't a mainstay of film mm -hmm. here in America. Yeah. And I think it, I think it drifted that way for a while uh, but I think that it's been drifting back uh, I saw something not too long ago talking about how few R-rated movies are made these days because there's not enough money in them and I think that's what's really driving a lot of this is the money aspect of yeah. it and if you let's say you have a movie with some sexual scenes that you know is going to get an R rating that you know is already going to be a bit of a challenge to the box office the best thing you can do is create some buzz for it if you can get those guys who are you know looking at mr skin or some of these other mm -hmm. celebrity mm -hmm. websites where they focus on celebrity uh nude scenes in movies mm -hmm. you know if you can get some traction there maybe you'll get more people watching your yeah. film because ultimately we give every 12 year old kid their own smartphone these days mm -hmm. and that's just an unending world of mm -hmm. hardcore pornography Correct. that we put in a 12-year-old kid's and hand. So it's not like back when you and I were kids and you had to stumble upon the stuff. It's in people's hands now, 24-7. Oh. So you've got to do something different to get people to look at it or to use it as a... Uh, as a calling card. Definitely. Now, um, and you, you had alluded to the, the, the foreign film thing. And just as, a, as, as an example, um, to your point, is whenever people hear, say, for example, Last Tango in Paris, you, you think of, you know, nobody thinks of the plot. The, no. the Last Tango in Paris, it, it, the Mar Marlon Brando character, he's grieving a suicide. 99% of the people who've heard of the movie have no clue. That's because, I, was say, I, I, I forgot that until you mentioned yeah, it. Yeah, because the movie is so, I, I, that's a movie I have never gotten through. I've never gotten through that movie its entirety because it is so front loaded that, and there's some, some non-sexual ex exposition scenes. But it is a very difficult movie. To, I would, and I would imagine when it came out, you know, even by... At this, at this point, also, Maria Schneider has done so many interviews yeah. saying she felt raped during the exactly. making of the movie. Exactly. It, it's, it's as hard to view as a, you know, Kevin Spacey movie at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so there are some... A lot of the, the a lot of the mythologies and a lot of the stories associated with a lot of these movies are now being, you know, revisited and, and relooked at. And Last Tango, like you said, is a perfect example of that. The so but but, but if if you were but if someone were to get a take home point of a movie in and of itself which may have adult content, that in and of itself. They're, wait, how do I phrase this? <laughs> would you say that there would be a true statement that if there are people who are um, 
more, more prone to the self-medicating behavior that it probably would not be wise for them to be watching certain movies. Uh, yeah, I think so. I know that, you know, I, I was an addict for about 22, 23 years. I have been a movie lover just as long, if not longer. And, uh, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I always looked for the little N when HBO came on or the <laughs> SC, because I knew that meant that they'd, yeah. be, they'd be skinning it. Um, and it was a selling point to me. Uh, when I got into early recovery, I, you know, had to tell myself through cognitive behavioral therapy, okay, this movie has some skin and I wouldn't watch something like, and I, I don't mind sharing the name, but something like blue is the warmest color mm -hmm. that has a very uh, explicit sex scene in it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'd have to know I probably shouldn't watch that. Um, I could watch it now because I'm six, seven years uh, sober and mm -hmm. I don't have the same, I've kind of worked my muscle memory and I've worked myself to understand that, you know, if I see nudity in a film, that isn't a green light to mm -hmm. engage in my addiction. And a lot of what caused my addiction is gone uh, mm -hmm. or I've worked through it. Uh, addiction is usually about unresolved trauma. Mm -hmm. um, I worked through that trauma. So I can see movies now with nudity. I can see movies with uh, sex scenes although I don't go looking for them the way that I, I once did. Uh, but I think that people who feel like they may be a little bit more towards that proclivity do need to avoid it. Mm -hmm. Just like somebody who may have a uh, gambling issue mm -hmm. really shouldn't be walking into a casino, really shouldn't be taking Correct. a vacation in Las Vegas. <laughs> you know, you have to know yourself and you have to uh, create certain boundaries that uh, you hopefully don't cross. True. And, and this might be the part of the podcast where someone might be listening and saying, this has to do with mental, mental health. Why? So I, I did want to, you know, bring it back, back on, you know, not, not that it, has not been on point, but specifically to the mental health for, for those who would be saying out loud or, or, you know, sending me hate mail or whatever, what does this have to do with mental health? Um, what you're describing that the behaviors, the self-medicating, that's something that would be, that would make a person more susceptible to a, 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 a diagnosis of something like depression, like even with with bipolar, you've got the the moods, you know, the, the roller coaster thing. Absolutely, that, you'll, that you'll find in. most addicts do have a mental health issue. Most, a lot of addicts are dealing with bipolar, or they're dealing with depression, PTSD, uh, borderline personality disorder. Uh, there are there are very few addicts that don't have some kind of mental issue going on. For myself, I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder going back to even before I knew I was an addict. Um, and then in recovery, uh, I was uh, told, and I absolutely agree, that I do have PTSD from stuff that happened when I was a kid. And I also do have a detachment disorder. Um, as part of my, my mental health makeup. And I know that, um, you know, I truly believe that addiction and mental health go hand in hand. I think that, you know, no, addiction, can I ask, addiction you... is just a symptom of broken mental health. It's how we deal with it. Correct. Now, can I ask you, um, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, you had mentioned de de detachment. Do, do you, is that, when you, you said, do you mean like dissociative? Yes. Disorder yeah. dissociative. Okay. Yeah. That's something yeah. that I have encountered myself as well. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm, I'm the kind of person who 
I can go on a 15 hour road trip and I only have to stop for gas. Um, you know, I'm somebody who can sit in a waiting room for three hours and it, I don't know whether it's 15 minutes or three hours. Um, I have, I have a capacity to unplug very quickly, um, and kind of let real time just evaporate. Um, and that's, that, that's a coping mechanism. That's a survival skill that I had to adapt when I was being abused as a kid, because that's how I got through it was to simply go somewhere else or not even go somewhere else, but just get out of my head. Yeah. And, 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 that's something that I've, I didn't recognize I truly carried with me until I got into recovery and began going through things. But yeah, it was very clear to me that uh, that is something that I have. And uh, along with the bipolar that tends to run towards the mania, along with the PTSD, and it's mm -hmm. just a matter of managing those things in a healthy way. I managed them for so many years, both with pornography and also with alcohol. I was an alcoholic as well. Um, yeah, I, I quit both of those on the same day because I love yeah. a challenge. May, may I ask, do you have the, there's a term dual diagnosis? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, I do. And a lot of, uh, when I was looking, I went to rehab twice, once for alcohol, once for the porn and sex issues. And I always look for a dual diagnosis clinic yes. because it's among porn addicts, um, and this this is an old statistic from uh, Patrick Carnes, who's kind of the guru in this area. Uh, he, in studies that he's done, he said that I believe it's only 13% of addicts, uh, sex or porn addicts, come from a family that doesn't already have a history of addiction, and that almost all addicts have at least, almost all porn and sex addicts have another addiction going on concurrently. Yes. Well, I, I did want to ask you, and again, for those people who, and, and again, I, I, I know that as, as a podcast host, I, I don't have any obligation to um, de defend or give further explanation, but for, for those you know, remaining people who might be saying, but this doesn't have anything to do with mental health, for those remaining people who are listening and who might say, but, 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 and they're still saying, but, but, but this isn't in the, the DSM five, and and just just to press pause and and just for many people who don't know what the DSM five is, that is and and, and correct me if my if my information is not correct, but that is essentially the the di I forgot the abbreviation, but it is the diagnostic tool used by psychiatrists when they is that is that. Correct. It's, it's a, it, yeah, it stands for uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, sure. and it's basically the uh, sort of Bible mm -hmm. that the American Psychiatric uh, Association uses in diagnosis. The issue with it is that it gets updated so rarely. The DSM, it's called DSM-5 because mm -hmm. we're now on the fifth update. But this thing started in 1952. Mm -hmm. The last time it was updated was 2013. Mm -hmm. The last time it was updated before that was 1994. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at you know only one update in the last 25 years. 25 years ago, we weren't talking about video game mm -hmm. addiction. We weren't talking about gambling addiction nearly as much. We weren't mm -hmm. talking about sex or porn addiction. Um, these, these are what are called process addictions, not chemical yes. addictions. And it just wasn't talked 
about much and there hasn't there hasn't been enough studying as of 2012 long-term studies that the American Psychiatric Association felt that they could use it now on the flip side you look at the World Health Organization exactly and that's what I was going to ask you the from a more international perspective not just because DSM is US based right so from an international perspective there is a, a contrasting view so anybody who would would deny it being a mental health issue based solely on DSM-5 I don't necessarily know that that would be the, the smartest conclusion to, to, to no, reach. No, absolutely and I, and I do want to stress the uh, the ICD that uh, the World Health Organization has the latest version came out in 2018 and and that one stated, or for the first time, stated that uh, sexual impulse disorder is a diagnosable condition. Now that can be porn addiction, that can be sex addiction, voyeurism, uh, peeping tom, uh, mm -hmm. you know, all, all those kind of things sort of in an umbrella. Now they aren't saying that, and the, the the words addiction and addict aren't really used anymore. It's, you know, uh, substance use disorder, behavioral <laughs> disorder, what, whatever. But, you know, uh, these, uh, they probably will say it in their next one. Then they'll, because they'll have enough studies, at least, at least the World Health Organization exactly. will. Uh, because much like, you know, politics, it's ridiculous how, or government, it's ridiculous how slow the medical community goes uh, when it comes to uh, accepting things, when it comes to accepting enough studies to reach a conclusion. And it's just one of those things where most therapists I've met absolutely 100% agree that pornography and sex, you know, intercourse, our addictions, it's just a matter of the DSM catching up. Uh, you know, they didn't even talk about alcohol or they didn't accept alcohol uh, dependency as an issue until the 70s. In the early 50s, they were calling it a personality disorder. Yeah. So, you know, they've, they've always been behind. And, you know, the moment it's like a car, the moment it rolls off the lot, it loses so much of its value. Uh, it's great to have if you don't know about something in an area, you know, a lot of it is evergreen. But if you're looking for breaking cutting edge uh, information about addiction or anything in psychology, you're, you're better off going to psychology today online than uh, and looking up what the latest uh, research is rather than going back and looking at a book that's, you know, approaching 10 years old. Exactly. And, and I would like to think that I, I have obviously the best guests, but also that I'm providing the most up-to-date and accurate information so that if someone does come across the, this podcast and that if someone is, um, if what you're describing meets their behaviors that they've been doing, that they would, um, you know, research more more information to to learn well, more about it. And I'd also say that a lot of it is just labels, and I feel that way about a lot of uh, mental health conditions. You know, you walk into the doctor's office, he tells you that you have OCD or ADHD or bipolar, and then you walk yeah. out. You're not a different person than you were <laughs> when you walked in. You're the same person. Exactly. And uh, a lot of these diagnoses are just about 
putting a series of symptoms that you self-report and, and they try to put together a puzzle to figure out how to treat it, uh, sometimes with talk therapy, sometimes medicinal, sometimes both. Uh, and that it really, you know, when I've talked to therapists who believe or don't believe in uh, pornography addiction or sex addiction, you know, I, I always find myself saying that, you know, I was also an alcoholic. This had the exact same effect on my family, yes. on my professional life as alcoholism did. Uh, alcoholism is accepted widely. And I usually say to them in a very smarmy tone, just be grateful that you have the luxury of ignorance when it comes to living this. Because... <laughs> I, you know, you can, you can say it's a obsessive whatnot and you can say that it's a, you know, just a, a manifestation of some other thing. Well, I, I lived it. I had to deal with it. I know that I looked at porn as a crutch to make me feel better for more than two decades, much like I used alcohol. And, uh, you know, you can argue with me that it's it's real, it's not real, it's you know not technically an addiction, but wh whatever. I know what happened to me, and I don't worry about these labels so much. Uh, and that's what I always try to tell people whenever you know I, I do some coaching and advising of people who are just starting to explore this this area, and they're like, you know, I don't think I'm an addict. And it's like it doesn't matter if you're an addict or not. What's it doing to your life? Yeah, exactly. Let's talk, let's talk about that, and we won't we won't talk about the word addict. Uh, yeah. Let's call it just a hobby gone awry, <laughs> um, because yeah. people get hung up on addict on, yeah. on, on definitions. Yeah. They don't want to be called an addict. They don't want to be labeled as having an addiction. And it's like fine, call it whatever you want. You know, say that you're a pretty pretty princess. Uh, whatever makes you feel good, yeah, go yeah, for it. Yeah. You really just have to deal with the problem. And I know my problem was 100% legit. The closest thing I can compare it with is the alcohol dependency that I had. And that's why I fully believe that pornography addiction, uh, like any other addiction, is a brain disease. Well, have would you say that there's more or less a, a you know just a, a cross section of society, or would there be a, a demographic that that sticks out at you more that, that, than others, or is it uh, where would where would you say the problem areas, if if you want to call well, it that? The, the would... problem areas for decades was the straight white male, and that's because because pornography was geared towards a straight white male. Mm -hmm. We're talking about boogie nights and you look back then, we're talking about a, an expensive to produce film. We're mm -hmm. talking about an expensive to distribute film. Mm -hmm. Well, who was their target market? We have to remember pornography is a business. Exactly. The target market was the straight white male mm -hmm. uh, because you could not make enough money or turn a profit uh, uh, trying to appeal to the black male or trying to appeal, appeal to the white woman uh, or trying to appeal to homosexuals. There just was not enough uh, customers out there to make this worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So when you look at older generations of people, say 45 and up, you're going to find it's almost exclusively uh, straight white males who deal with porn addiction. Now, when you go below that, you're going to find a lot of different people. The In the 18 to 30-year-old group, 
the groups that are expanding and are really exploding when it comes to figures with pornography addiction are, are white women, mm. are black males, and are members of the Catholic and LDS churches. <laughs> and I truly believe it's because access is so easy to it now and production is so easy. You know, if you would have told somebody like, you know, the character Burt Reynolds plays, he, he, you know, he scoffs when uh, that one producer comes in and talks about videotape. That oh, exactly. it's, you know, it's sacrilegious to the art of filmmaking. <laughs> well, but if you would have told this guy in 1977 that everybody in their home could yes. be making pornography and putting it up on this, you know, system of computers that would spread throughout the world. And you literally could have a porno magazine or porno movie made that mm -hmm. evening and distributed to the world that evening. They, they, he wouldn't understand what you were talking about, but <laughs> yeah. that's the way it is these days. Uh -huh. It costs nothing to create and distribute. And if you want to target specific audiences, it's much easier now because you don't need a large uh, heterogeneous audience mm -hmm. to make any money. You can have a small homogeneous audience. That's what you see uh, pornography aimed specifically at lesbians, specifically mm -hmm. at different ethnic types. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sp and you go onto a porn site and you look at all the different categories, you know, in the 1970s, there was not a big call for pornography mm -hmm. involving food or yeah. pornography involving people in their 70s and 80s. But you can make that now and you can give it to a small audience. Yeah. And I think that's where you're seeing. And it turns out that women and people who aren't straight white mm -hmm. men yeah. uh, and different ethnicities all and different sexual orientations. Yeah. Well, we all have the same equipment and we yeah. all, you know, yeah. are, are curious <laughs> and we yeah. all, you know, feel like we need a sexual release or we are at yeah. least sexual beings that you're yeah. seeing all these other communities Correct. start to catch up. So now, there it, is no right. one. While historically it's straight white men, there is no one group. And okay. when, when I went to rehab, I learned that. I mean, I met a wonderful woman who was a nurse who was like 55 and she was addicted. <laughs> and, you know, mm. I met a 19-year-old girl and I met people all in between, um, mm. lawyers, doctors, and, and you know, vagrants. Uh, people who are brilliant and people so, who are morons. It is, yeah. <laughs> it, it is, it is, there is no stereotypical porn. Okay. So in, so in actuality, it does cover a, a wide cross section then. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, I did want to ask you as far as the, um, and again, so far, so far I'm working through, through the paddock. Good. That's the tail, well. the tail end of it. Tail, tail end of it. Um, and, um, and then there's something you, you had uh, mentioned, um, and this is relevant to what you were, you, you've been talking about, is um, I do have a favorite John Waters movie. Um, I think it's poly, I want to say polyester. There is an opening sequence in that movie that there's very few movies that I laugh out loud at. This was one of them because there was a, an opening sequence where the main character, and I, I think it's polyester, that he's treated as this awful, disgusting guy who, keep, keep in mind, this is John Waters, you know, right. prior to pre-hairspray. And it's just treated as like, oh, there's this horrible guy or whatever, which for, for that time would, would, you know, is somewhat of a stereotype. But it only is funny 
when the pornography itself is forbidden or because or once you know over time that scene becomes less and less funny over time as the basis for that joke and that scene because like i said that was an era when it was not uncommon for cops quite literally you would, you would have police departments seizing film prints from different movie theaters right. So that's not unheard of. And I, I don't think polyester would have met the criteria. I know Pink Flamingos would have, but uh, I don't think polyester would have. So I remember watching that movie and I don't think it would find it funny that much anymore now because of simply how pervasive and, and how mainstream it has become. That's precisely why it was so funny in that John Waters movie. But you watch it now when it's like, like that, the, the humor just is not there. Anymore. Right. No, absolutely. And, and I look at this in terms of, uh, you mentioned the pandemic earlier, and mm -hmm. the biggest thing that's happened in the online pornography world with the pandemic uh, is the explosion of a site called OnlyFans. Mm -hmm. And it most people under 40 have, uh, it's part of their everyday life. Uh, it's part of the youth culture. Uh, and people over 40, maybe even down as low as 35, most people over 35 have never heard of this site. And, and I, I have not. I would be in that category. I have no... Okay, well, it's, it's basically a Facebook or a uh, Instagram where you, you open your page and people subscribe to it. They have to actually pay whatever you determine. You can make it free, <laughs> yes. but most people charge money to it. So let's say I charge you $10 a month to come to my page. I then can post any photos that I want, any videos that I want. And if you want to text with me or if you want to exchange messages, I can charge you for that too. Mm -hmm. So what's happened is that this site's been around for a couple of years and it's found its way to making money in the pornography mm -hmm. community. Yes. Because instead of spending tons of money, you find that one woman you like and you mm -hmm. uh, you know look at her stuff. And what's happened during the pandemic is in January, there was about quarter of a million people who were producers mm -hmm. on this site, 250,000 worldwide. There is now, as we, as we tape this in late August, uh, there is now roughly about a million people who are producing pornography on this site because a lot of them lost their jobs. And who lost their jobs? Service employees who uh, you know, are good-looking waitresses and bartenders and waiters. You know? But it also shows this younger group doesn't have the taboos against pornography that you or I grew up with. I mean, I know I go back to my high school days and I think about how if somebody had a picture of the popular good-looking cheerleader in a bikini, well, everybody would have wanted to see that picture. That would have been, that was the most, yeah, been the yeah, most amazing thing. Yeah. But with Instagram now, you're kind of an outcast if you don't have bikini photos on there. You're yeah. kind of an outcast if you're a guy and you don't have photos just wearing shorts and your shirts off. You and, know, ho and, holding, and holding the little orange cup, which... Yeah, exactly, you know. exactly. <laughs> the, and and that's, that's the thing is that... But, but you look back on 50 years ago, you know, 60, 70 years ago, our, our grandparents or even great-grandparents, you know, it was salacious to wear a two-piece bathing suit for a woman if you saw more than an inch of her stomach. Yeah. And we've gone from that inch of stomach to everybody can see each other's yeah. bikini and, and bathing suit photos. Um, 
to a place of OnlyFans where people yeah. are willingly taking their clothes off. And I think that's what yeah. you see, the moving of society. And I think yeah. that you might start seeing this in movies as well yeah. soon. On that point, do you recall a movie a few years ago, the the Betty Page movie, the the biopic about yeah, the, the it was Gretchen Mall. Yeah, I was very underwhelmed. I, I didn't dislike the movie, but a, a lot of what you you were just talking about, as far as the generational thing, I felt there was so much more that could have been addressed in that movie because it felt very wikipedia-ish very surface level yeah i've 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 preferred uh documentaries about her even though they may have less actual skin because mm -hmm. um, they're on discovery channel yeah. or a and e or whatever uh when it comes to her story and talking about that era i i tend to uh i tend to prefer true documentaries because you know she she had a crazy interesting life even mm -hmm. after she left the pinup world exactly. um and uh yeah, it, that that's a perfect example where she these days would be one in a million, lost in a crowd, uh, nothing special, mm -hmm. because there are just, and forget OnlyFans for a second, there's a million people doing exactly what she does for free on the internet. Mm -hmm. And yeah. she would not stick out that way. You know, it, I don't know, I don't know how you stick out these days as yeah. a sex star quote unquote yeah. um because again like i said there's there's three quarters of a million people making pornography at home who weren't yeah. doing it at the beginning of this year well can i ask you something do you feel ju just just your 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 gut reaction would you say would you do you feel again gut reaction that many of the people engaged in these behaviors that, that you're describing, be it be at the website or, or other, do you feel that those are people who are truly, genuinely happy in their lives? I would say probably not any more than a porn addict is, because I think what's interesting is I think the last six months have forced us to ask a question that we never did before. <laughs> not just what's going to happen to people who consume too much pornography, mm -hmm what's going to happen to people who make too much pornography? Oh, exactly. Yeah. I don't think, and, and one of my big uh, bugaboos about the anti-porn movement is that they have been using bad arguments for years. <laughs> you know, nobody cares if the uh, actor or actor, actor or actress is from a world of squalor or they're being beaten or any, none of these excuses or none of these reasons for not watching, you know, trafficking is a horrible, horrible thing oh, that nobody who watches porn cares about. And I hate to say that out loud, but nobody who watches porn cares about it. Otherwise they'd stop. And all we're doing is seeing an explosion of it. And now we're seeing an explosion of people who are very willing getting into porn. And while I do think that a lot of these people have issues, it's not the lower class people. It's not, you know, the wrong side of tracks. This is middle American sons and daughters who turned 18, 19, and they just don't have the taboos about showing their bodies yeah. that, you know, we did 25 years ago. And now you're seeing that I don't think that the argument of, well, what happens in 15 years if somebody sees these photos? Well, <laughs> 
the reality is if one out of every seven people in 20 years has made pornography and put it out there, it's yeah. not that big a deal that it's out there. Yeah. Uh, but I, what I wonder is what are going to be the mental health uh, aspect of it. Oh, if you made uh, pornography for two or three years right around this time, is there any lingering, you know, issue 10 years from now, 15 oh, years from now? Absolutely. I think that's a question we have to start asking. Correct. Now, the one of the things that Boogie Nights has in common with another movie, The People versus Larry Flint, is the parental issue with as far as in Boogie Nights, the Julianne Moore character. And in yeah. People versus Larry Flynn, I, th I think it's the John Doe character, I want to say, where they encounter difficulties with custodial issues because of their, their um, extracurricular activities. Um, that is something that has been fairly consistent as far as mainstream representation of it. Do, do you find that to be correct as far as those who are dealing with it do, do encounter those issues as far as um yeah i i can't give you any statistics on it uh i don't know but you know it's funny you brought that up because as i was thinking about doing this show earlier today uh, i was going back to that scene of of uh of juliet in the um room there with her kind of just scuzzy husband. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I think it, it, it shows a lot because she's shown as this glamorous mother figure put together, you know, in the world of porn, but then you yeah. put her into the real world and she's sitting across from this guy who upon appearances is just this like little scuzzy troll, but he actually has the moral high ground because she in fact does have a drug problem. She sure. in fact does see making pornography as an acceptable thing to do and a lifestyle that, uh, you know, a child shouldn't be around. And it's not until I think you when you see her in her car immediately after crying, mm. I don't think that's crying necessarily because she didn't get custody. I think that's crying because she truly recognizes that there is a problem in her life. There is a problem there right. that, you know, she has found family with this band of, you know, I don't say miscreants, but with this, mm -hmm. you know, band of people who all have severe trauma, all have other things going on and have formed this de facto family, but this de facto family, at least in 1977, and I'd still say probably today, mm -hmm. uh, does not meet acceptable family by our mm -hmm. mainstream standards. Yeah. Well, one thing on, on, on the, you, you had alluded earlier about the different categories and whatnot, in, in different uh, porn um, areas. And when I've encountered different, like whether it's incestual type content or, and I don't know, uh, I, don't know I don't know if it's just me, but I don't find that, that sort of material, I mean, I find it icky in a way. I mean, I don't, I don't find that remotely. I, mean, I, I think it's sick. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, so much well, I mean, but, but, but here, here's the thing that's interesting when you talk about that genre and the latest book I released, um, actually I went and I uh, studied uh, this genre a little bit because yeah. Pornhub tries to hide the fact that it's their most popular genre. 
Yeah. If you are a producer of porn, you cannot have the word incest in your yeah. description. If you want to view something like that, you can't have the word incest in your search. Nothing will come up. However, if you search terms like stepmom, stepfather, mm -hmm. sister, brother, cousin, yeah, thousands and thousands of videos. And one of the <laughs> things that I did in my book was that, you know, I kind of debunked the idea that people aren't into this stuff because if you add up, all of these different familial search terms, you know, stepmom, stepbrother, all that. If you add yeah. all those videos up, it blows out of the water almost anything else that people are looking for on there. They can just see we don't have incest videos yeah. because yeah. people aren't uh, searching that word. And yeah. the one thing that's interesting about this, though, is that most studios, when they produce, or these smaller studios, when they <laughs> produce incest videos or yeah. incest fantasy videos for Pornhub or whatnot, they mm -hmm. always have a warning on the front that says that these are actors this is not these are not family members because creating that material in most states is illegal if they were legit so so most of the viewers actually know it's a fantasy and actually know it's not real okay. going into it so to me that's even more interesting is that people understand it's just a fantasy. So it makes me, you know, I truly believe people are not the porn that they look at. And I know just based on what, towards the end of my addiction, when I got real yeah. critical mm -hmm. and I had to, you know, amp up the ext extremeness of it. Uh, I believe that most people want to get lost in a world that is nowhere near their real life. And True. I believe that incest fantasy porn that is specifically and explicitly fake from the first frame, I think that allows a lot of people to go to that fantasy area. Not defending it, because it is yeah. still on yeah. a concept pretty messed up, yeah. but they know what they're getting into immediately. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I find that interesting, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely the number one genre out there. It absolutely has been for a while, but nobody wants to talk about it being a the genre that's gets the most hits yeah and and like i said i i, I read about so, some of that and i just it's hard for me to wrap my head around because i just have zero interest in something like that and and it's difficult for me to comprehend how someone could find that appealing or in any way um it's just that's the, again i just have a very hard time with, yeah, with, no, uh, I, I, I certainly <laughs> understand it because it wasn't a popular, and I, I've been sober now for six and a half years. Yeah. It wasn't a popular genre back when, back when I quit. So, you know, it's one of those things where it is, uh, it's puzzling to me how this thing exploded. Yeah. Do you think that if what you've encountered, if it had happened in another country outside of the U.S. where the um, social mores or whatnot had been different that you would have had a different outcome? Uh, maybe. Um, you know, if you look at statistics from places, you know, I India just tried to put a mm -hmm. ban on internet pornography. Uh, 
apparently they've never heard of VPNs to <laughs> work their way around it. But, uh, and, and there were websites, uh, and I won't give the names of the websites, but, you know, and I mentioned Pornhub. They don't do this, but there are websites that are very popular out there that have been banned in places like India. They just add the number two or the number three onto their name, and there they are yeah, again. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, uh, I think it depends, you know, because, I don't know if I was in a different country, I wouldn't have been babysat by the same person. Had everything been exactly the same just in Canada or England or Australia, I probably would have ended up the same way because we see enough people who end up the same way. Yeah, That's yeah. why when I'm out there giving presentations um, and writing my books and talking to people, the thing that I preach is not an anti-pornography stance because that's just stupid. It's mm -hmm. like trying to go for prohibition again. It didn't work. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, sexuality is something we have. We need to talk mm -hmm. more about healthy sexuality. Yeah. But what, what's needed is education. I like mm -hmm. to believe that if my parents had known that pornography could be as bad as cigarettes or drinking or any of this, it would have been included in the be careful of this stuff speech that mm -hmm. they, they gave me as a kid. Exactly. And that society tells you about, you know, I tell people pornography should not just be part of the sex talk with teenagers. It needs to be part of the addiction talk, part oh, of the stay away from this stuff talk. Uh -huh. And, you know, don't smoke. If you find a cigarette, bring it to mommy or daddy. Uh, you know, you can't, I, you're 13 years old. You can't drink yet. When you're 18 or 21, you make your own decisions. Um, the same has to be done with pornography. If we need to tell the kids that, you know, there were a lot of people who look at too much of this stuff and get sick, you're going to be able to make your own decisions when you're 18 years old. <laughs> but right now, as a kid, I don't want you looking at this stuff because this is what most kids get addicted to. It. Yeah. And so, I think you're going to see a lot less of uh, pornography addiction with just doing uh, that simply or doing yeah. one, one day of pornography addiction education in schools yeah. instead of drugs or alcohol or, or whatever it is. What, what recommendation would you have for parents who might be listening to, to the podcast? Uh, recognize that your child wants direction, especially the younger they are. Recognize that you can make this a non-scary topic. You don't have to make this graphic. You know, something as simple as you don't let anybody look at what's under your bathing suit. And <laughs> you don't look at what's under anybody else's and you don't take pictures and they don't take pictures. And, and that's fine for a seven-year-old. Then you teach them how to cross the street. Yes. And, you know, for a 10 or 11-year-old, it's a slightly more explicit talk. <laughs> for a 13 or 14-year-old, especially a boy, maybe you start talking about the erectile dysfunction problems yes. that come with too much porn watching. Because I believe 13 and 14-year-old boys don't want to be porn addicts they want to have girlfriends and if you can and i warn them or even scare them that bad things can happen maybe we'll see less kids doing that but i think it it has to be addressed but it can be addressed in a very age appropriate manner and still have a lot of uh a lot of impact on that kid's life good deal good deal what um what would be your main take-home point for those who 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 are self-medicating and who who hear themselves in in what you've described what would be the main get takeaway help. point get help. get help you know because the thing is i got to a point of of critical mass where um you know i lost my job i almost lost my family um i really had 
my life torn down. A lot of people found out about my issue. Uh, and it's something that I wish I could have gone back and done it differently. I wish mm -hmm. a year earlier before it started getting really critical uh, that I would have gone and sought some help, both for the alcohol and the porn. But um, if you're listening to me and thinking, well, I, I, I would never get to the point that I lose my job over it. Well, you know what? For 25 years, I didn't either. And then I got to that point. Uh, it's something that sneaks up on you. Addiction only ends in a few ways. Addiction ends with losing your friends, losing your family, getting into financial trouble, getting into legal trouble, or dying. That's how addiction ends. And you have the power to stop that before any of that happens. But you've got to reach out and get some help. Definitely, definitely. Well, well, I do um, thank you for, for being on, on, on the show today. Um, as, we, as we wind down, I did want to mention um, some of the resources and, and definitely hold that thought because I did want to um, ask you a, a couple more. Um, in, if you're in the U.S., I know that there's Mental Health America at mhanational.org. There's also National Alliance on Mental Illness uh, AZNAMI.org. Uh, there's also a, a couple of the, the uh, hotlines, the NAMI helpline 1-800-950-6264. So the NAMI helpline 1-800-950-6264 and the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 1-800-273-TALK. Um, what other resources would you recommend for those who, who would want I, I would say I would say try just about any resource you can. Try the okay. twelve step groups: okay. Sexaholics Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous. Um, try online forums. There are bulletin boards where different guys talk about this stuff. Go to a therapist and tell them what's going on. I've not met anybody who just finds one way and that's the way that they recover. Mm -hmm. um, for myself, coming on shows like this, writing my books is a great way to stay sober. It's a great way to keep it front of mind. I know not everybody can do that, but mm -hmm. that's part of what works for me. And I think that people need to try different things. Uh, if you want to learn about all different resources from these internet groups to the 12 step to uh, recovery centers and whatnot, if you go to my website, which is recoveringpornaddict.com, uh, there's a page of resources and it will list all of these different things. So if one thing or one modality doesn't work for you, don't throw in the towel. You know, I did 12 step groups for about six, eight months. I got what I needed out of them and then I moved on. They weren't the end all be all answer for me, but they are for some people. I can't tell you if they are for you or yeah. not. Some people. So just to confirm that is re recoveringpornaddict.com. Right, recoveringpornaddict.com. Okay. And, you know, just keep trying and keep working it until you find that sort of uh, formula that works for your recovery. And that is, um, uh, um, well, not necessarily a mix, but uh, uh, a variance of different uh, resource, you know, recovery modalities, both faith-based as well as, quote unquote, uh, secular and non-sectarian. Ab absolutely. So. And, you know, if, if uh, God, higher power, whatever you want to call it, plays a central role in your life, it can absolutely play and should play a central role in your recovery. There are some who feel that you must have a higher power to recover. And I think that's a lot of BS. 
because I think that everybody is capable of recovering on their own. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you need to have a deity that you pray to. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't call my you know deity God or higher power. I call it the universe. Yes. Uh, that's yeah. that's that's how I how I deal with mm -hmm. it. Um, and I don't necessarily subscribe to any specific book or any specific holy building in my town. Yeah. But I do have a spiritual core uh, wow. that does help me. But if you don't have one, you don't necessarily need one to get better. Mm -hmm. uh, regardless of what some of the ultra uh, religious may say. Uh, I have seen plenty of people recover. You can use God as a tool for recovery, or you don't have to. It's, mm -hmm. it, that does not determine whether you recover or not. Correct. And, and, and that's important to remember because as with any mental health issue, variety of backgrounds, variety of um, people. And, and so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely correct. So, but um, just to thank you so much for, for coming on, uh, on the show. Um, thank you, those of you at home or in your car or at work or wherever you might be listening. You might be in the in the gym if you're if you're in a city where the gyms have opened, and hopefully you're wearing a mask if you're at a gym. Um, but I do thank you for for listening. Um, stay safe, and um, talk to you next time. Bye. Okay, let me go ahead and end this. Oh, oh wait, wait. Um, how do I pause?